Welcome and welcome back to Not Your Token Minority, an interview podcast that explores and celebrates the stories of the global majority. In this episode, I speak with Jemima, who is an academic and co-head of a school of Māori and Pacific Studies at a tertiary institute here in New Zealand. Her research and work focuses on mental health and suicide prevention in the Pacific community, and a lot of our conversation looks at those very topics. While we talk about suicide on more of a research and academic level, this conversation still may not be appropriate for all listeners. If you or someone you know is impacted by suicide, you can call 0800 Lifeline, that's 0800 543 354, or text 4357 at any time to get support. You can also find more mental health information, resources and helplines on mentalhealth.org.nz. Thank you so much for having me here this morning, Jemima. Um, it's such a privilege to be able to come here and speak to you about your background and all the issues and stuff that we're going to dive into today. Do you want to give some background for our listeners about your heritage and where your family's from and all that sort of stuff? Yep, sure. I'm Samoan, New Zealand-born Samoan. I hail from the villages of Tanga, Salilunga and Vaimoso in Samoa. My Grandmother migrated as a 26-year-old to Auckland and my grandfather had done so around the same time as well, um, both from Samoa. And then they had children in, in the Waikato area, Tokoroa, Mankino, and then I was born in Tokoroa. And so I've spent most of my life in, in West Auckland, actually. I loved it, the diversity and a real, back then, a real close-knit community kind of feel and so the majority of my schooling was in Amadale actually. Okay well for listeners who aren't even in Auckland because uh, we've got some people from like overseas like in Japan the UK the US who might not be familiar with Auckland can you describe a bit about what West Auckland is like or was like when you were growing up and also what the era of Avondale was like as well? Auckland obviously is a province within the North Island of New Zealand. Um, it's probably the largest um, Polynesian, as they say. Um, I don't usually use that term, but Polynesian city um, in the world. And it's quite diverse. And so, yeah, West Auckland is just a, a, a kind of a subsection of Auckland. And it's quite diverse. When you say Polynesian, what does that normally refer to, that term? As much as I don't like to use these terms because it's a kind of like a colonial kind of um, perspective of the Pacific Ocean, which makes up, you know, the Pacific makes up like a third of the globe. And so it was kind of marked out by a Frenchman, actually, who marked it out as Polynesian, Micronesian and Melanesian. And so Polynesian meaning many islands as right. opposed to... Micronesian, which is smaller islands, and then Melanesian, which is that you know mm. to do with the skin, and right. so normally that's the dark-skinned kind of Pacific peoples. So, in terms of being the largest Polynesian city, the majority of say Samoans, Cook Islands, Nguyens, um, Tongans reside in Auckland. Would you say that when you were growing up, you really felt like you fit in into the local community and with other communities around you? Yeah, I guess so, because in Amadale, everything was there, like our school, it was our homestead, and um, our church, which is, you know, that was where my church mates were also my schoolmates, and so there was such a close-knit kind of community in, in Avondale. 
I read some articles that you interviewed for in the past and you mentioned that you did sometimes experience a bit of racism at school. Yeah, yeah. And I have said that publicly. You're right. And I guess the the schools that I was a part of were primarily mainstream. That was the majority population. It was not until I was in my later kind of years as I was leaving that it started to diverse I don't even like that word, but kind of started to look a lot more like New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, or Auckland. <laughs> or Auckland, Auckland yeah. yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I, I did experience that because normally you're with your gang, you you, you know, your, your mates, and, and you like to, to stick together, and I would secretly do my homework and stuff like that because, you know, you don't want to leave your peers behind and, and you do want to do well. And so that meant that I was in different classes to a lot of my peers, and obviously the makeup of those classes didn't quite look or sound like me. I was subjected to lots of that kind of racism, whether it was overt or an unconscious bias, kind of being seen as someone that would not particularly be considered to kind of thrive in any kind of academic circles. And so, yeah, that was that was a bit not soul-destroying, but it was enough to put it on my radar and that this doesn't feel good, nor does it feel right, and it's kind of making me a little bit angry. Mm. I always used to think it was a me problem back then, and realising, in fact, that it absolutely is not. It's a them or a you problem. And so learning to kind of like work through the internalisation of being an outsider or, or not belonging it taught me some really valuable lessons, actually, because I guess it helped me to develop thicker skin in circles that are predominantly the mainstream. And, of course, in lots of circles where now is very male-dominated. So I think I don't completely see it as a regret of any kind, but more so just a, a learning curve. Do you feel like, unconscious bias contributes to a lot of how youth from like Maori and Pacific Island backgrounds eventually succeed or not succeed or achieve or not achieve? Oh, completely. Absolutely. And, you know, it is systemic and there is much wider issues um, and equity issues. Obviously, those with more access to certain resources are obviously going to get the best of whatever that area has to offer. And 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 so the antithesis of that is that those who don't are always going to be kind of like scrapping the bottom of the barrel, if you know what I'm saying. For instance, for example, the way the curriculum is framed, a lot of what we learn has absolutely no, no relevance and doesn't doesn't even resonate because can you imagine if it was a curriculum or that was kind of geared towards the realities of that youth population whatever can you imagine how better off they'd be and how much more they'd be thriving and so um yeah society has a major part to play in that and and it's the way lots of things have been constructed are are racist. You know, as much as people say, oh, it's an unconscious bias, I think we've moved completely past past that now. And I, I consider it 
straight out racism really yeah so, so it's, it's very conscious yeah. <laughs> and very deliberate absolutely and for you yourself did you always aspire to work in academia or what were your main sort of dreams or goals when you were a student well obviously you know my family had migrated with the hopes and dreams that New Zealand would offer prosperity and so you know and that's kind of the narrative of most of my of our migrational histories and then I guess the kind of mentality and attitudes around that in terms of the family is kind of nurturing that well you need a good education to be able to you know to have accessibility to all these options my family didn't really pressure me it was was mostly my grandfather who really wanted me to be a lawyer so in the back of my mind, I knew I was going to end up at university, but it wasn't one of my burning desires. It's not until I actually came and, and had a stab at it and realised this is absolutely not me and just sought other kind of avenues and then just pretty much stumbled into lots of areas and, and just began to, I guess, succeed in some of those areas, which then yes, did open up opportunities. So I guess the migration and and the hopes and dreams around that wasn't completely lost. What did you discover to be the things that you you excelled at and the things that you were most passionate about? It was definitely to support or, or better the outcomes for Pacific communities and families and young people moving from you know getting a a taste of law and moved into kind of education and exposed to some amazing critical thinkers and thought leaders people that were in the space that were speaking decolonization and reframing and reclamation and all these spaces and it all just clicked and this is an undergrad in education and I realized this is where I want to go. This is exactly what I've been holding inside for so long. And then so pursued that because I pursued education because that's where it was obviously exposed to me. And then from then on, um, you know, did my uh, master's and then suicide kind of spilled out of that as a um, a topic, a spin-off from my master's. And the opportunity came for me to do a PhD in suicide and suicide prevention amongst specific communities. So the drive and the passion and the wanting to be a voice in, in, in spaces that w- weren't quite privileged and considered minority, to have that voice and, and given that volume, I found it quite liberating and empowering. So it only felt natural that... I would go wherever, wherever I felt that. And then I landed in the health sector, you know, in population health and, and still doing the mental health kind of stuff. And now I'm back here in Pacific Studies and Arts where it's quite interdisciplinary, so I get to do all the things I love, hmm. um, but with a Pacific focus. Great. Mm. So you mentioned that you've done a lot of work in suicide and mental health in the Pacific communities. Can you talk a bit about where the interest came from? I did this research with my masters that looked at why Pacific young people were leaving traditional churches. And as I mentioned, you know, church is like almost like a village family huge, atmosphere. Right? And that's where that's where you feel your culture, your language belonging the strongest. And so there was a time where 
there was an exodus of Pacific youth leaving these churches. And so, you know, the Presbyterian organization wanted to find out why. And so they commissioned this research. Did that and then um, from there spilled out, you know, lots and lots of issues to which mental health and suicide was one of them. And then obviously around that time, loved ones close to me had killed themselves or had attempted. So it was like, okay, this is something I need, I'd like and need to do. And then, you know, ultimately that just landed me into bigger things and, and being able to affect policy a lot more and write about it a lot more. And so I was part of the Mental Health Addiction Inquiry in 2018 as one of six panellists. And then now I'm one of six commissioners for the inaugural Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission. I'm just reflecting on this this conversation right now and that I said right in the beginning that the migrational history comprised, you know, the hopes and dreams of my grandparents and, and just to see it come to fruition now is, is quite a big thing, not just for me but for our communities. Mm-hmm. And, and being at these tables that reflecting on the, the topic we're speaking about right now that can sometimes be still quite uncomfortable. Going back to your research about the link between the number of youths leaving church and the connection with suicide, what did you discover there? It was it was quite complex. It was like there wasn't a direct link, but there were different kinds of aspects revolving around, say, risk-taking or engaging in suicidal behaviours and leaving the church, because of the traditional church, that is. So, you know, um, sexual orientation, the kind of authoritative and, and re- stringent rules within some religions, um, you know, some denominations, the navigating or negotiating being New Zealand-born or multi-ethnic in comparison to your parents who were just full on, you know, trying to maintain and, and, and nurture their traditional ways. So just like a, a, a mashup really. And then our young people trying to navigate, navigate those spaces. And at the time, a very long time ago, you know, some of the narratives around that was that, you know, church, they couldn't see themselves in church and they didn't belong because of the, the context that we're in and where they were born, not being able to speak language. A lot of the conversation was around some of the adverse impacts of the navigating those difficult spaces to which suicide or suicide attempts was one of them. What do you think it is about being a part of those communities where these young people don't feel like they have another option? I think it's this is for any human, really. I don't, you know, suicide or, or, or in that moment has no sense of identity, colour, age, gender. Someone has to have come to a, a point of absolute mental distress, whatever that may be, whether it's depression, anxiety, whether it's hopelessness. I've come to learn that over over my time, uh, you know, investigating it, that no one will ever, ever know at that time, that exact time, what that person was thinking or feeling. People will, you know, point the finger and say, oh, it's because of this. It's because they had this relationship breakup. It's because they took 
these drugs or it's because she fell pregnant and, you know, so many issues. But as much as it can be an impulsive act, it's not, there is a build-up and there are signs. And so it's about my work, I guess, is we know what the contributing factors are. But how do we have those safe communications and those messages, how do we have those messages that can speak to different parts of our, our population, right? And so it's yeah, it's increasing the mental health literacy around suicide. It's being not making people just be aware, but just be absolutely cognizant of it. Recognize when someone is is feeling shitty or down or is not quite the same, or you you know this is going on in their homes or in their workplace. You know all that type of stuff, and all this person's just closed themselves off. So how do you raise that kind of consciousness? I guess amongst amongst the population and. And for young people, I mean, gosh, half the time, you know, they're still de- their brains are, are still developing, particularly from 15 to, say, 24, a little bit 30 maybe, give or take. You know, our frontal cortex is still kind of developing and you, young people can't make sound decisions. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we can all think back to moments where we've made terrible decisions growing up. Absolutely. Do you think that the way that suicide and mental health is approached is quite a white perspective and doesn't take into account the various cultural differences? And because we spoke about this before, like one of the biggest barriers to a lot of people from minority groups is that they can't access mental health resources in their own language, for example. Mm. 100%. And even like the ways to prevent it or the ways to help support someone after a suicide death are quite white. The languaging, how those are portrayed, who's delivering those messages. There are cultural nuances, right? And there are ways that we know that click with our people, whatever that may be, because we know. Mm. And there are certain terms. I mean, suicide, that word doesn't even exist in lots of parts of the world. It's quite clinical, the approaches. And I've argued, and, and many in, in the sector have argued that, you know, you come with a cultural approach before you come with a clinical one. And meaningful engagement around that is key. Removing the prejudice and discrimination around uh, around suicide in, in the first instance will be a start. For instance, lots of people say commit suicide, or he committed suicide, or... What that implies is that they had committed something that was illegal, you know, committed mm. a sin. Or yeah, or commit a crime. Commit crime. Mm. And so you remove that word and, and, and automatically removes any judgment or stigma. So died by suicide is, is the preferred term. You mentioned briefly before about suicide postvention, which I've seen you talk about in public. Can you talk a bit about the issues and challenges around that? Well, suicide postvention, for those that don't know, um, is roughly supporting the the suicide bereaved. So people that have experienced someone close to them that has died by suicide, whether that's a family member, friend, peer, sports teammate, someone that we are connected to. And so suicide postvention is putting in those support mechanisms for those people, right? 
because obviously they have heightened risk and stress, distress and all these other kind of mental health issues bubble for various reasons, grief and and it's quite triggering. So that's what suicide postvention is really. Edward Schneidman, who was considered to be um, the father of suicidology, basically he argued that suicide postvention is an actual fact suicide prevention and that that's where it should actually start. And it makes complete sense because if you take it to the intervention stage where you, you wouldn't be preventing in the first place, and it's right because, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people can be impact, impacted by one suicide death in, in, in diverse ways and we need to support those people in, in moving forward and coping and using those unfortunate events as learning opportunities. I know that sounds very black and white and worky, but it's quite simple. Complex, but simple. Communities have the solutions. And I've always been a big believer in give them the resource and allow them to do what they do best. Mm. And so I guess that's how you serve it. You serve populations more effectively. Where do you see approaches to mental health and suicide now and where do you see them needing to be? I mean, it's still a slow and steady grind in terms of suicide prevention. Like anything, more needs to be done. I mean, it's really good that, you know, from the Mental Health and Addiction Inquiry that the recommendation to first to establish a mental health Wellbeing Commission has been achieved and then we're seeing some resource being allocated to different pockets of society, especially for those that are impacted the most I mean, I think everyone's impacted but I mean by world standards you know, we have one of the highest suicide rates in the developed world And what about at an individual level, say if someone wanted to talk to their loved ones, for example, about needing to see someone about mental health or, you know, um, because there's a lot of stigma, uh, I think, if we're just talking about our individual cultures, like there's a lot of stigma, I think, in Samoan culture as well towards mental health and a lot Mm. of stigma also in Chinese culture as well. So Mm. at an individual level, how do we frame those conversations with people around us when there is that judgment Mm, mm. It's normalising the ability to be able to reach out for help or for those, you know, when someone's in, in a really not cool space, not expecting them to reach out, you know, like, hey, go on, <laughs> go online and look up some numbers for yourself, even though I know you're looking, you know, you're doing shitty. You know, it's, a, it's an ability for us too to be able to, reach out and do it for those people, Mm. being real enablers and and supportive around that. So it's kind of that kind of messaging, I guess, um, and safely. Once we start normalising that, then, you know, I mean, myself, you know, the other day in a staff meeting, um, they were talking about certain services that staff can access for your mental health and wellbeing and counselling. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm... I'm leading this, you know, one of the leaders of the school and obviously the department. 
and being able to say in front of my colleagues and and you know others like yeah i i have access that so if you see that you think far if she if she can do it and is quite open about it then it should be okay and it kind of starts with those little things and so how do you do that for say like my 90 year old grandmother right now it's it's speaking in ways that you know click with them for instance my nanny um my grandmother she is like 90 something She's going through some major changes and in and out of hospital and stuff like that. And for my mum to sit with her and just sing old hymns mm. all in Samoan, and she sings them from memory, and wow. my mum's got her hymn book. And so that kind of stuff is a real positive contributor to mental well-being. So it's helping Nanny kind of keep her spirits up and stuff. So can you see how there are certain ways you can still say the same thing? Mm. So mum was reaching out offering her support and help in that space because Nanny, you know, she's a bit down Mm. being in hospital care. So it isn't really like a complete discernment, I guess, that you develop. You know know what? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's just, it's love and kindness, you know. That's all it really, really takes because most often they're not the person on the other end is not feeling loved, mm. <laughs> you know. It's bad, It's hard enough loving themselves, let alone others, and you'll find that that's really what it is. There's a disconnect. So as someone supporting them, how do you love? But then how do you love in ways that you know? How do I love in a way that's a Samoan chick from out west? <laughs> that will connect with another Samoan chick from yeah. out west, you know. Yeah. Well, what if you are the one needing that support and love and help but the people around you are not able to see why and be able to give you that mm. it is open communication and and I've I have had some criticism criticisms around that like how are we going to sit down with our parents and talk about blah blah blah, blah, blah. Mm. and I said like, yeah I, I get it I get it but the communication is around this is what is going to make me happy or it's going to help me, right? Again, what can programs offer in terms of supporting a person? The Western or more mainstream ways of supporting a person is the individual. We know what works for Pacific, probably for Chinese culture as well, is that you work with the family. You need the family buy-in to be able to support that person 100%. So bring in mediation if you have, you know, people that can kind of act as the conduit if you can't. Yeah, I think with a lot of communal cultures where, you know, the focus is the community rather than the individual. Yeah. uh, I think like a group effort really is needed sometimes. Like totally, absolutely. We've kind of mentioned or alluded to a number of times about your work in academia and you actually recently gave a talk about being one of the only brown people in the room sometimes um so i'm quite interested to hear about your experiences around that and your thoughts on this education institution yeah it was a raising the bar event and it took around some uncomfortable spaces and some of the challenges particularly as a brown female academic 
and so yeah a lot of a lot of that talk was around that and the experiences of racism and experiencing all the isms in those spaces and you know academia is it's not an easy pony and being able to i guess juggle juggle the workload and then Sometimes, you know, I used to feel this, I don't anymore, having to prove yourself and, and earn your right to be at certain tables. When in actual fact, it's like, well, I have every right to be it, actually. And then kind of like so sick of the microaggressions and, and all the racism that you're like, well, what is the point? And then you realise, you know, you realise that if you're not there, then we aren't there kind of thing. And you represent different kinds of people so you do try and wave the the flat wave the banner and and these various spaces and you know you can't do it alone and that and that's key recognizing who goes with you into those rooms and i mean you know your ancestors where you're from the migrational histories and the stories and um, all that stuff knowing your peers knowing that, that you enter those that room with all that, all that mana and all that support with you. And so it does give you like a, a boost of confidence and and get over yourself, Jamama, you know, like yeah. pull yourself together, just do what you're here to do. So, yeah, and in that respect, it's been challenging but also really enlightening and, and enriching. I wanted to just uh, – because you mentioned the word mana and I think as – people living in Aotearoa, like, I think it can sometimes be quite a difficult term to explain. Um, can we talk a little bit about this concept of mana and also also the interconnectedness that you've also referred to? So it's not just you individually right now. You're also carrying all of your history and all of your – all the people who have come before you. Yeah, so mana for Māori and Pacific people's there is no transliteral English, it's not interpretation, mm. because as you know, probably know, in our own indigenous languages, Pacific languages or whatever, that a word can mean so many things and so deep. And so mana can mean like um, honour, status, um, the representation of your tupuna or your ancestors. Um it's very complex. It's very complex, but it means a lot when you say that to someone straight away, that's all you need to hear. And so what I meant by turning up to certain rooms, carrying with you your ancestors, the, the narratives and the discourses and the spirit of those before you, giving you that strength, that's... For Pacific and Māori, and I, I can only speak for Pacific, um, but I'd say it would be the same for lots of cultures, is that you you were never alone. Your ancestry is in your DNA, so you don't turn up as an individual and, oh, this is me and my with my two legs and two body, uh, two feet, two legs and two arms, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's everything else. It's your past and... You can foresee your future because it's in your DNA. So when you come in that type of with that type of spirit, not even mentally, but just um, not even feeling, just with that richness, I can't even say it in English, 
you realize that it really isn't about you. And that I think for me as a leader, you know, as a leader, you have to have a vision. And for me, that is the vision and that, okay, thank you, my people that are with me. Let's go. Let's go forward because ultimately it may not be for this next generation, my nieces and nephews. It could be the next generation. Whatever we do now, right, is always going to impact. So, yeah, it's just the passing through certain, not time zones, but certain periods, I guess. Mm, I love that. And I love that there's like that spiritual level in thinking in a lot of our cultures. You also mentioned about those microaggressions and the instances of racism. Can you give some examples? And I think I mentioned this in, in my Raising the Bar talk in that the hypervisibility. So, oh, yep, tick our box. We have the brown girl in the room. That's great. Um, she represents all Pacific, apparently. The exclusion can be considered racism as well. That type of stuff or, or people... You know, in their body language and, and some of the things they say, um, just you can feel it, you can sense it, you can see it, and you're like, oh, why? Well, what's the point? And, you know, and just having to battle that as well, it just gets a, a bit annoying. Now I've gotten a bit more, I think I've gotten better at it, but getting to this point was a struggle because, you know, you're a junior academic, um, I'm, I'm still kind of not completely there yet, but, you know, you're all a student and, and, and there are all these power dynamics that go on and then when they're people not necessarily from your own ethnic background, it just it can, it's really quite unsafe. And there are still some culturally unsafe spaces um, across the tertiary sector. What do you mean by a culturally unsafe space? Oh, you know, the the racial slur, the casual casualness around some of the things that they find funny or acceptable and others around the room kind of are complicit. <laughs> um, when you're like sitting there going, do you realise how racist this, what you've just said or do you realise what you're doing or, you know, mm. and it can be disgusting in some ways because these are sometimes they're your colleagues and you're like, first of all, you are teaching some of our underserved students, you are actually engaging with these populations and this is your type of attitude. Like, what are we doing? How are they feeling? If I'm feeling uncomfortable, can you imagine what the students are feeling? You know, that type of stuff or... I th it's getting better, and I think our faculty is really good around that. Everyone, there's so much work to be done, you know, everywhere. I guess it's a, a little, a little bit easier in, in a university because obviously, you know, freedom of speech and everyone's critical thinkers, and there's a lot in Pacific studies for sure because you know we're all about decolonizing lots of stuff, lots of stuff, whether it's methodologies thoughts, you know, just flipping the script, really, and um, privileging and acknowledging and recognising and really celebrating our worldviews and our perspectives. And so I think it's quite a privilege where I am right now to be able to do that 
and apply it to all facets of my life. No, and I don't care where I am anymore, you know. Just, like, being comfortable in the skin that I'm in. Yeah. And being able to, I guess, nurture that for our students. Do you see a lot of the similar struggles that you yourself went through? Do you see them reflected in your students as well? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All the ones that are, you know, people of colour or diverse backgrounds, not the majority of New Zealand, yes. So it's not just a Māori Pacific thing. I see it in lots and lots of other students as well. And the kind of dynamics in a tutorial or a lecture theatre. And then, of course, male domination. Into, you know, lots of different kind of areas that you see. But I think I've seen the changes. I mean, I'm seeing also a new generation that are very vocal and very activist-like and are not going to take any more shit, you know, and that's so encouraging. It is. But at the same time, you see that they're quite vulnerable. It's more than just teaching content sometimes. eh? Yeah, totally. So in an ideal world, how would you like to see an institution like a university be run? Well, in the context of New Zealand or Aotearoa, as you know, we have a Treaty of Waitangi, so there is supposed to be a relationship and a partnership between Māori, or that's the First Nations Indigenous Peoples of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Pākehā, or New Zealand European. And so I think until that is sorted, then I, I can see there'll be shifts in lots and lots of ways. Because we're so fixated on a mainstream way of doing things, and there's this is the only this way to heal this person, this is the only way to teach this person, and anything else is just by the wayside. Whereas if you if they could coexist, or you could adopt large components of indigenous indigenous knowledges, it would just reframe people's thinking. But we're so programmed. I'm getting a little bit philosophical, but I think. What needs to happen is being open and to not new ways, but new ways for mainstream to relearn. And I could see some of the society's ills being addressed if, if that being the case. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of, and I, I'm only talking about our society in New Zealand here, but a lot of social issues that we experience. They've come from colonialism. Yeah. Being being colonised. That's right. Really. Absolutely. And you kind of see similar patterns in other areas of the world that have also been colonised. Oh, totally. (laughs) Absolutely. The introduction of Christianity and just the demonising of lots of our knowledge and it's, it's completely wrecked us completely and then the audacity to turn that around like gaslighting communities um, and nations and then again saying why can't you be something why can't you succeed you know we can do it it's like well first of all should we take it back to where it all started you talked also before about the only moldy kid or the only brown kid and they're sort of put up on a pedestal 
and kind of uses like the token person to say to everyone else, oh, well, they've done so well, so why can't you be like them? So I am quite curious about the sort of quota systems for, uh, for example, like Māori or like Indigenous students to enter university or things like med school and law school and things like that. What are your thoughts around those systems? First of all, I think that faculties or like institutions are responsible for dispelling the myths that are around those quota and the stereotypes that kind of surround that quota kind of intake and that it's all about reducing inequities, right, Mm -hmm. that have, you know, that have been prevalent in, say, law and medicine for years and years and years. Yeah. Because once again, it's a framework that is pretty much Western and works to serve a dominant majority population at the end of the day. And so, of course, there's going to be disparities and inequity because it's a framework that serves your interests. So then when it's like, oh, no, we actually are more weighted to to one side of the population than this, we better do something about it. I know what. Hey, let's make it like every year, like six people, you know, you know, they must think, wow, you know, it's that white saviour kind of mentality, I think. Let's kind of um, put this quota on and, yeah, that'll give them something to smile about. You know, mm. rah, rah. Now, the is still exists amongst some of the students and that, there are the biases around, oh, did you come under the, are you a scholarship student? Did you come under the quota or that admission scheme, you know? And most often they're not, they they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> that's racism. Mm-hmm. And it's it has no place anymore. I mean, that's that stuff's like 20 years ago. A lot of the population we serve is diverse, so the workforce should reflect that. And a lot of the problems is because the workforce, the current workforce, does not reflect that, mm. and so people are being served, underserved in, in lots of lots of ways, and are, are incompetent or culturally incompetent because of it. And there's also that sort of perception, right, that students who are admitted to courses based on admission schemes don't work as hard as other students, mm, no, which isn't true. That's not true, and mm. I would firsthand can can attest to that because I'm a lecturer myself and see that. And I know, you know, I work with like law students and medical students and clinical site students, in Pacific Studies students, whatever, and the work ethic is, is just as hardworking as any other student that's trying to, you know, yeah. actually make they yeah. want to get into that vocation. So. Definitely. And it also kind of, I feel like it relates to that stereotype of people relying on the hard work of others to do things in their own life. So, you know, the whole stereotype around people being on the benefit and it all kind of ties in to that as well, um, that kind of racism. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. But, I mean, here's an example. Look at, you know, with all the border restrictions and then you see all over the news 
those who look after orchards and stuff like that are panicking because there's no international people to help with the fruit picking, for instance. You know, it's like, well, see, see? Because when they were here, you know, they're kind of devalued by some. And then you just realise just how much of a contribution that, you know, everyone makes. But then what are the opportunities those orchard owners or whatever you call them are, are making for people to progress? Or are you always going to have them as fruit pickers? You know, are you ever going to guide them or nurture them, mentor them? Yeah, and I feel like people who criticise these sorts of schemes are also kind of their Forgetting that once you go out into the real world or the workforce, you're not on a level playing field. Like, mm. people of colour are going to face so many more challenges and hurdles than a, a Pākehā is going to. It goes way back, right? And with all that indoctrination of different types of perspectives and privileging, it's hard to dismantle that. When a generation is, that's all you've ever known. Yeah, it's a very, it's, yeah, I think it's a very complicated and complex topic and definitely not something that we'll be able to get to the bottom of in this no, conversation. But, no. but it's, it is simple, right? And that, like, stop being racist, yeah. stop recolonizing us, yeah. and just, you know, like, yeah, do you feel confident that in generations that will actually happen? Well, if we look at the history books, we've seen some revolutions, right? And still we're still at the same point, but we've come a long way. Yeah, I, I, I can feel it in this new generation. I can definitely feel this fire in their bellies. Uh, but like your platform, for instance, the more stuff like this that you get out, you know, you start kind of, building that resistance but you know confidence in people yeah definitely um i can definitely feel it as well i definitely think that it's the younger generations who are kind of pushing for that change uh which is great i think i do see more pakiha at least being more conscious of the role that they have yeah yeah, no, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, still a long way to go, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But yeah, no, um, thank you so much for your time You're and welcome. for having this chat with me. Mm. I'm sure that my listeners will get a lot out of it, at least from perspectives. Thank you for listening. I know there were some hard topics and big questions in this conversation that don't necessarily have clear answers right now. But it's these sorts of conversations that we need to keep having to drive better, kinder and more inclusive mental health and suicide support.